0: Praise waited for Thee, O God, in Zion, and unto Thee shall the vow be performed. Let us bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. This evening, God above, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bow before You, depending upon Your grace and mercy, Lord, thankful for Your providence towards us, Your special providence in particular, Lord, as Your people. We ask, God, as Your people, we ask for Your mercies upon this nation, uh, both materially and especially spiritually, God. That law and order would be maintained both locally and nationally, especially as we have the Floyd trial before us, God. And we ask, God, that our leaders and influencers, Lord, whoever they may be, would make the right stand and stand for law and order, which our history of our nation has had for many generations, God, and not turn into uh, another time of rioting and fear and uh, wickedness, God, spread across this nation. And so, Lord, we pray in particular that our churches would be protected, Christians would be protected, and that we would stand firm and strong, God, that we would continue as the Church of Jesus Christ, not only the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, Lord, uh, but all faithful churches across this nation, God, uh, to teach and instruct the people what is right and wrong, and not let society dictate to them what is right and wrong, as we have seen uh, now, Lord, these many years. So, God, may we Resist the temptation from society and their false views that permeate our lives, God, from advertisement, from news sources, <clears throat> from entertainment, God. seems like it's everywhere. So, Lord, we pray that our churches would dig into the Word of God, dig into your natural revelation you've given us in our common sense, Lord, that we would not throw it away but reinforce, and God, may you preserve us. We pray for faithful and strong teachers, God, and leaders, uh, to instruct us, especially for some issues that seem to be confused, uh, Lord, we have confusion within the churches, God, even the best of us, Lord, that we would stand firm and eschew that confusion and get to the truth of the matter, God, especially in regards to a number of issues, Lord, that deal with things that we can observe and study, and we've had studies and observations for many generations, God, especially in the last hundred years, Lord. Uh, we see that with respect to differences between men and women, for example, God, and that we would do our homework, and again, not... Uh, be directed and guided by the way the world thinks. We ask, God, in particular for our families and our friends, Lord, for those who are not saved, that you would bring them to conversion, that you would save them, Lord, that they would trust in you, they would join the Church of Jesus Christ, they would be baptized, need be. We pray, God, for those family members and friends of ours who are Christians, Lord, and we have our differences and maybe even struggles, God, that we would wish them well. We would pray for uh, better instruction and knowledge for them, Lord. We pray for humility for our part, God, as well, and that uh, we can do what we can, God, with them, uh, to have our agreements with them with respect to the Word of God, and maybe sometimes simply agree to disagree in other issues, Lord. We pray for our unity in our family, God, to be strengthened by the unity that we have in Christ Jesus. So we ask, God to be with us, to help us, Lord, carry on this week, to do our calling and vocation in life as husbands, as wives, as mothers, as fathers, as children, as citizens of this world, and members of this church, God, to do it joyfully unto you. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us turn to our Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 as a nice, simple division between general and special revelation. We're on the second part. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Let us pray. With these amazing words of comfort, Lord, and joy we see here, and the desire God to exalt your name and your law, may we too follow the path of David, uh, to rejoice in the perfect law of God that is used to sanctify us by your power and your Holy Spirit. We pray, God. Amen. We live in an era of legalism and antinomianism. Those two big words describe, I hope, a reality that we'll see. Not the first one as much, the legalism, you've heard that, I'm sure, not as big a word as the other one, as adding to the law of God. That happens often with taking away from the law of God as well. The Pharisees did that, they would add to the law of God and talk about holy great things you're supposed to do and swear to the temple and the like, which they never actually did. It was their way of crossing their fingers, lying. They were adding to the law as much as they were taking away from the law. Lying. I think it was okay to lie as long as you made it sound pious and holy. Those two typically went hand in hand and go hand in hand. But ages come and go with an emphasis on legalism, for example, during the time of the Reformation and the Roman Catholic Church saying, you are saved by your good works. You were specifically justified by your good works. That's still around today. But the bigger problem we have, especially with within society itself, not and it's coming into the church, in fact, so I guess I can't say especially. There's antinomianism against God's law. Nomos means law. Anti, you all know what that is. Antinomianism, not just legalism, but especially, it seems, antinomianism against God's law. This is seen in the widespread moral chaos, as we saw. Last year was a good example of antinomianism. Forget the law. Let the people do what they want. When they want, and to whatever they want to do it to lawlessness is another word, right? That's what we are dealing with. Politics and family and Hollywood and everywhere else. Being against law or being lawless or antinomian comes in many forms and different degrees, to be sure, just like legalism. One form is to formally admit with your mouth the perfection of God's law, but then turn around and never teach it. Right? So there are churches who say, sure, oh yeah, we've got... We have this belief, maybe even a confession, yes, God's law is holy, righteous, just, and good, but they don't teach the people the law of God. They don't instruct them in righteousness of what it means to be holy. That's not good. That's a form of lawlessness, which of course is not as bad as just outright denying God's law. Others teach the law, but undermine that teaching by suggesting that there's a better law of love, for example, or the law of Christ, some kind of conflict between uh, law and love, or faith and law, or something like that, grace and law, for example. Instead of trying to parse all the different ways people ignore or bypass God's law, this lawlessness, antinomianism that is running amok in society, and unfortunately spreading into the churches, I think it's easiest to study what God's law is, to ask someone what they think of, for example, Psalm 19, right? You have this discussion, well, I believe in grace and we're not saved by law. That's true, we don't, believe, we don't believe we're justified by God's law. But God's law is important in the Christian life. Here's a good way to get them to think about it. Psalm 19, can you say with the psalmist, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. Do you rejoice? The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Do you fear God? So let's discover and look more carefully at the perfect law of God's great law. The perfect law of God, verses 7 through 9, the perfect law of God, verses 7 through 9, law or Torah, you've all heard that before, I'm sure. It's synonymous or can be translated not only law, but testimony, statutes, commandment, judgments, and related words. And yes, there are other Hebrew words that are testimony, commandments, and judgment. We've mentioned that before. Meshpot is one of those you heard. So Torah it can include all of those. In fact, we read in verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Well, we read the law, verse 7a, right? You see them in pairs there. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, 7a, 7b. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statues of the Lord are right. Rejoice in the heart, 8a, right? So you have these, it's it's poetry, it's Hebrew poetry, this parallel, synonymous parallelism is called. And it's describing the law is this, and it does that. The law is this, and it does that. The law is described this way, and we see the effects of the law. And so the law is perfect, it converts the soul. The testimony is another word for law. Statues is another word for law. Commandment is another word for law. Judgments, 9b, is another word for law. Everyone see that? And what do we have in 9a? The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. We see that the fear there is probably a synonym for law. Or the idea that the law and fear are very close to each other when it comes to Christian piety. Fear of God is commanded in the New Testament, right? It's not just the Old Testament thing, they oh, they've got to fear God. And we know that fear, and I'll talk about the fear in a little bit, uh, is not the kind of fear the world thinks of fear or slavish fear. But I wanted to highlight that I, I'd read a commentary, that, you know, the critical commentaries, and one of them was like, "Well, maybe there's a mistake here in the Hebrew. It's not fear; it's another word related to Torah, uh, and a slight variation of the of the Hebrew text." I'm like, no, what's wrong with with fear? And besides, we know. Well, if you go to the proper training, <laughs> like I got in Hebrew poetry, they have specialized uses of what is ordinarily used differently in other parts of Hebrew literature kind of interesting. You find out, oh, I would never use that word that way. But it's poetry, so they're going to use it a little, a little more differently. So I think fear is a good example of that. But it's here. And I'm not going to play around with the Word of God and in the Hebrew and say it's not really with the word fear. It is the word fear in the best of the texts. It is not here from David's perspective of the Old Testament when he says the law of the Lord is perfect, I do not believe he means only the moral law of God is summarized in the Ten Commandments. I think he means that especially, but not only. Right? What do he have in the Old Testament? They had the ceremonial law, and they had the civil law. The ceremonial law was perfect as far as they're concerned. Just as our children uh, think of our word and our command as sufficient or perfect and complete, and don't add to it, although... We command them things that are not explicitly commanded in the Word of God, right? You're, you're supposed to celebrate your birthday today, not tomorrow. You've got you to gotta go to your, or your, your apartment today and not tomorrow or the next day. And you have to go to bed at a certain time. You have to eat certain things. Those are specific rules that come and go and change with age. Ceremonial law is like that. It's built upon and based on the authority of God, the fifth commandment. Same with the parents. And it went away. But David didn't look at it and go, well, it's a ceremonial law. Man, it doesn't really count. That's not God's law. We don't expect that from our kids to say that's not really our parents' law because when I'm 18, I can eat whatever I want in their house. I can stay up as late as I want in their house. So the rules they have now don't really count. I'm not really going to honor them. No! We wouldn't accept that from the kids. And David doesn't, do that, doesn't have that kind of mindset either here. To him, whatever God tells him to do, even if it's temporary, is still perfect, holy, just, and right. And I ought to do it. That's my point. And we ought to do the same thing because let me tell you, you're commanded to baptize the nation. You're going to be baptizing in heaven? Temporary ordinance, isn't it? Should therefore we treat it any less and say, well, it's not quite the moral law of God, so it's not really as, as important. Catch my drift? This is what, this is the same con, same idea, but from the Old Testament perspective. That's what I'm saying. And so he is saying all of it is good. Uh, the ceremonial, the civil, and I think, of course, especially the moral, because that's abiding. That does last forever. Where he knows the ceremonial, because he's no fool. He knows before Moses, he had all kinds of ceremonial laws that didn't exist. But he knows they're they're added. And they're probably, therefore, temporary. And nevertheless, as long as they're here, they are perfect or good enough for me. It's God's word, and he embraces it. (laughs) So... All of this is what he means by law, but again, especially and uniquely, the moral law of God. They knew the difference. They knew worship change, as I pointed out. Proverbs is a good example of Torah or law, and in fact, it's a good example of this part of the psalm. This part of the psalm is more like the Proverbs, isn't it? The, I, the emphasis on the law and application and how important it is. If you go through the Proverbs, and I do, I've done this, I did a short sermon series on Proverbs. I, I picked um, I I picked the Ten Commandments and went through the verses of the Ten Commandments from the Proverbs. And what you'll find out is there's like only one or two passages that talk about worship. that talk about sacrificing something. Because the worship forms change. Right? From one age to another. We're not going to have baptism anymore, for example. We do that in a worship service. Uh, But the, the moral law Yeah, The heart of worship is still the same. The outward form changes, but the heart always there. You don't worship any other God in your heart, but God Almighty. So, the Proverbs is a good example of Torah, or law, with the worship forms not as emphasized as much. But the heart of the matter and practical living of God's Ten Commandments. And here, this psalm is considered a form of wisdom, literature, or poetry, something like the Proverbs. And you can see why. Now, he says here, I'm going to go through these verses here, uh, grouping them up. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, the testimony of the Lord is sure. And so you see there that perfect and uh, the testimony of the Lord is sure are parallel, similar ideas. It's God's law or testimony, synonyms there. And so perfection and surety uh, are parallel ideas there. The perfection, of course, is morally upright without error. Parents don't err, uh, even when they give you something temporary, uh, as a general rule. Certainly God never does. And it is sure or steadfast. It is something you can establish your life upon because it is perfect without error. And therefore, it has two things going on here. It's perfect and thus converting the soul, and it makes wise the simple. It converts or returns. It's an interesting word that they use uh, in the Old Testament. A change of mind is the New Testament equivalent of that word. And the idea here is to return back to the purity of God and his law, to give a new direction from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Return me, O Lord, and I shall return. We read in Jeremiah, for example, the word return could be translated repent. Or here, which is kind of a slightly different word, but a similar root, convert, to change. Change your direction. Return back to me, Lord. Help me turn me back to you. Turn my heart and my soul. The soul is all that they are. All that you are. Especially your inward life. Your mind, your will, your emotions. Not any particular one of those, but all of them together in the direction of your life needs to return or convert uh, back to God. And of course, in the case of the Christian walk, we have been converted, but we are also in a process of always being converted and fighting against the the drift of our sinful residue, sinful nature, and to fight against, of course, the external temptations we read this morning, trials and tribulations, and always converting every day, as it were. There's a small conversion and a large conversion in the Christian life. And making wise the simple is another effect of the perfect and sure word of God, law of God, testimony of God here, the wise and simple to make them Wise, that is, the simple. The word simple here means essentially immature or ignorant. Uh, there are three different words in Hebrew for uh, simple or fool. Sometimes it's translated fool. This is the lower, lower, lowest level of fool, you can call it, like a child. They're simply immature and ignorant. So we used to kind of say, oh, they're just being foolish, right, when you indulge them. And that's true to a larger sense. So we mean that in the, the least sense of foolishness in and a, and a nice way. And same here, when it says the simple... It means the unwise, it means the ignorant, perhaps new converts, to be sure. Uh, we're going to find that more and more in our increasingly pagan society. And if we have converts, they're going to be simple. They're going to have very little knowledge of God and his ways, or even his law, because so much of that law, natural law without the Bible that we know is written in creation on the hearts of men, being so eradicated and so trumped up and destroyed, twisted, that they're going to be simple, they're going to need God's law. The church should not flee from God's law during these dark times, but embrace God's law to help the simple and the new converts and, of course, children of the covenant, who are also simple and immature and ignorant and need to learn more of these things, to learn right from wrong in a world gone mad, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be holy and free from selfishness. The law is not just perfect and sure, it is right and pure. Verse 8, putting these two together. Statutes of the Lord, again, another word for law or Torah, are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It's right and pure. These are similar ideas insofar as purity is a metaphor, right? The purity of life is another way of saying the rightness of doing the right thing and being upright and morally correct, Impurity is the opposite. It's to be in sin and denying God's law. Impurity abounds today, even in the church, often because the law of God is so poorly understood or not carefully explained and applied to the Christian life. And instead, the laws of men are followed. And thus, confusion happens in the church, unfortunately. And what about this law, the statutes that are right and that are pure, unlike the laws of men it rejoices the heart and it enlightens the mind. We read about rejoicing this morning, right? Don't borrow the problems of tomorrow, but rather borrow the hope of tomorrow because the resurrection of Christ Jesus is coming. And here he speaks of the immediacy, right? The law of God here and now, not just the future, can rejoice in your heart. How is that possible? Let me ask you. Are you happy or unhappy when you're lost on the road? Yes, we're all unhappy. And there's more than one of you unhappiness or misery loves company. And we're all creaky. We don't know where we're going and we all talk to each other trying to figure out what direction we're going. And that's how life is without direction. The law of God gives direction and therefore rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. You see the right path, the right thing to do and the wrong thing to avoid. The right people to embrace and the wrong people to avoid. It gives direction and therefore comfort and even happiness. It's no fun not knowing what to do. When something important has to be done and you know in your heart, I gotta do the right thing. But what is it? What is it, God? That was a charismatic life I grew up with. I wasn't taught the law of God very carefully, very clearly. And I would say, God, what you will for my life? <laughs> Too justly? <laughs> walk uprightly? Follow my law? That's, that's the answer. Enlightenment, of course, is quite obvious. To show the path of life, the way to live following Jesus and his holy commandments, did Jesus say, if you love me, keep my commandments, not keep my suggestions, not keep my love, right? People like to pit, uh, even in conservative churches, unfortunately, whether intentional or not, doesn't matter. It's, it's very unhelpful. Somehow Christ and his love is pitted against law and commandments for shame. Let me tell you, your parents won't take you very seriously, children. And you adults, as you know, growing up as kids, or your boss... Your church. If you don't follow the lawful orders. If you're just like, whatever, I don't care what you think, I'll do whatever I want. You're like, what kind of love is that? You don't take it seriously. Because what we do is echo what Christ tells us. If we love him, we keep his commandments by his strength and his power. Verse uh, 9. Here we have another two. The fear of the Lord is clean. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So it's a little different here. He breaks off from talking about some of the effects of the law of God, from converting souls to making wise the simple, to rejoice in the heart, to enlightening the eyes. Uh, here he says it endures forever. That, that is, the fear of the Lord is clean. There's that idea of purity again, right? Cleanliness and purity are obviously parallel ideas, different ways of saying the same thing. Uh, we know, for example, uh, when we watch something on TV, it catches you off guard something something disgusting, it's some bad language or a scene, what do you do? You feel dirty. That's where the imagery comes from. We forget how much of our moral language actually comes from the Bible, the language and the words of the Bible. You can look that up, all the words and phrases and things like that, that have affected and influenced rightfully our society and way of speaking. And dirtiness is one of those, the opposite of being clean and pure. The law of God purifies us. So when we have that dirtiness of actual sin, of course, we repent We flee to God and we love his law and wish to enact his law and wish to see it enacted. We don't want to embrace and watch shows that over and over again throw in our face wickedness because they can get away with it. After a while you get dull and you get used to it and that's not good. So it's enduring. This fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord are enduring it lasts forever and ever. It's enduring, of course, relative to the worship forms that he had. It's enduring as far as he is concerned in his lifetime, but it fades away, so ultimately the endurment is, of course, God's moral law that will always be there, even in heaven. It's not like we're in heaven now, we can break his commandments, woo Right? It's there, it's always abiding. Unlike the world around us, where what is right and wrong is now, law, now wrong and right. It changes every few years, so the poor liberals... Of last generation, don't forget, Dr. Seuss was a liberal. Probably moderate compared to today, but a liberal. He was canceled because he wasn't liberal enough compared to today. And today's liberals are probably to be canceled another 10 or 15 years. It does not endure. Their standards keep shifting all the time to whatever play or convenience or whims, whim they have at the moment. God's law does not. You know where you stand with God's law. And when you're in the covenant of grace, you know you stand with God's law. Always with respect to your justification, for Christ has obeyed it for us. He is our justification. He is our righteousness. So we don't obey the law to get our warrant to heaven. We already have the warrant to heaven. We already are adopted. We want to start acting like we're adopted, like we're now royalty. And that's what it means to have the law of God and our sanctification. So he breaks with the pattern as I mentioned before, of the enlightenment, of explaining, making wise. And he just says here at the end of 9, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Not it makes you righteous or anything like that. He could have done that, but he just describes it more and gives you more explanation that it's full of integrity. It's upright is the idea of uh, righteousness. God's law is righteous. The way of the law is good, truth, and perfection. Following the law is to follow righteousness. With respect to sanctification, of course, we can be more or less righteous, although our justification never changes. God's law, in short, we read in these opening verses, is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, righteous, all together. And the more Christians that can agree upon that, the better. The next time you talk to your friend, or you're tempted yourself to forget the importance of God's law, maybe you're told there's some leftover Old Testament belief, Read Romans 7.12 to yourself or to your friend, gently. Remember Romans 7.12? Yes, you will, because I'm going to say it. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandments holy, and just, and good. That's Paul in the New Testament era. law is good. Therefore, we should embrace it. The perfect law of God warns, verses 10-11. through 11. Verses 10-11. through 11. The law, the judgments, the commandments statutes are more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold. You can have all the wealth and prosperity that we have, that we see now in America, although a lot of it is built upon inflations and things like that, a weak foundation. Cold cash or Bitcoins, it matters not. They have their place, as I mentioned. He's not saying, oh, I'm going to give up on gold and money and live in poverty. But if you have to choose, As it were to give up your soul for wealth and prosperity or follow God, we will follow God every time. It is more precious than the possessions of this world. That's what he's saying. And we need to remember that during trials and tribulations. See how well these verses by God's providence mesh with where we live today? As the trials and the tests are coming, brothers and sisters. The value of God's laws and everlasting value. Gold fades away. It crumbles, everything fades away, but not God's law. It's sweeter than the tastiest dessert. I like dessert. I like ice cream, even in the middle of a blizzard. But the law of God is sweeter also than the honey, than the honeycomb. That which you desire. You got a sweet tooth? You gotta have a law tooth. <laughs> Take God's law seriously. Because one day you won't be able to eat honey because of diabetes. (laughs) But you always have his law. And it warns us in particular. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. God's law has many benefits, and this is the one that sometimes we forget that warnings are a good thing. I want to be warned. If the bridge is out, I want to be warned if there's an accident on the road on I-25 before I get off on, what is it, 88th like we did this afternoon. I didn't see it till the last minute. It's just backed up. I don't know what's going on here. Warnings are good. We're the true warnings. Helpful warnings. And unfortunately today we're told, even in the churches, to avoid talking about sin. We don't want to talk about warnings. That's negative. That's bad. It doesn't make people feel comfortable. We don't need that kind of negativity, we're told. Yeah, warning from the wrath of God to come, to flee from the wrath of God to come, is a needful warning. from the consequences of breaking God's law, these are good things to warn people about. And in them there's much reward in God's law. The reward, of course, uh, perhaps of being warned. Again, often you have the parallels here saying the same thing with a similar idea uh, in the Hebrew poetry here. So the warning is itself a reward. I've avoided the pitfalls uh, of drunkenness, of drug abuse, of taking the name of the Lord God in vain, of having a vain life. And the rewards could also be an extension of the idea of warning unto good things, not just avoiding problems, but you live a little longer. What does God tell even in the New Testament, right? There in Ephesians. Tells the children, obey your parents, for this is well pleasing to the Lord. You can live long on the earth, not just the land that was the Old Testament promise, but upon the earth. So there are there are good rewards, a healthier way of living, to live longer, to have a peace of mind. We are called to a holy life, and God rewards us when we follow that holy life. And I know you don't feel holy when you follow it because. As good Calvinists, we're taught the depravity of man, and we feel our depravity. Yes, that's true. But I think you've heard me over and over again, very clearly in the text, where God says, I write down your good works in my book of remembrance there, in Malachi. How can that be? Because we have a new relationship with it. The glass that you see is half empty. God now sees as half full. Our sanctification isn't quite there yet, but he is pleased because of the blood of Christ. We are his children. And same with this. He rewards us disproportionately, to our obedience, our first steps, our first steps, Lord, as, uh, as the Confession says, the first steps of obedience that we have in this life before the life to come. That is God's grace rewarding more of his grace. And we are entering in hard times, in which perhaps we'll see a little less of the rewards and more of the tests, to see if we trust perhaps too much in the rewards than in God. But nevertheless, it is still reward in our hearts. We have a good conscience before God. I've done what I could, given my limitations, God. I plead my cause to you. Thirdly, the perfect law of God sanctifies. and just does, It's not just perfect, and it's not merely and only a warning, but it sanctifies. And, of course, there's overlap. Part of sanctification includes warning. Verses 12 through 14. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous Sins. It cleanses us. There's that idea again, of purity. It cleanses us by convicting us of the dirtiness of sin so we can wash it away with repentance. And the idea of secret sins or secret faults perhaps is to expose sin in what we thought was not sin, though it's a secret to us, and or the secret sins uh, that uh, we're unaware of, so we're ignorant of it, Or other people are unaware of it, and it becomes exposed, and therefore we repent. Whatever the case is, they exist, and the law is there to cleanse us from such sins. To examine ourselves. I mentioned this morning, part of the testing we go through sometimes is because we're ignorant. We bring it upon ourselves in that sense of omission, and not knowing enough, perhaps, of God's law. Misapplying God's law can make life a little more difficult for you. And here, an understanding of God's law cleanses us from this error, from confusion, from false sins, from sins and falsehoods, and cleanses us even. And this is one reason why the church should preach the law of God to expose secret sins that they could not ordinarily find out themselves. The stories I've heard—it's happened to me, but it happened to Leonard a lot more than me, I believe. Uh, in which he would preach, and someone would come up to him and says, "Why are you preaching about my sin before the congregation?" You know, and Leonard's like, "But well, I wasn't. That, I didn't know. <laughs> but God knew, and that's a good thing. The preaching of the law is a good way to protect the church because there are a lot more wolves—not only spiritual wolves, but as the adults know, um, the wrong kind of wolves who want our women and our children." Law should scare them off. It says this church takes God's law seriously. We will not put up with people who will undermine it or hurt us. And it protects us uh, more specifically here. Keep back your servants or protect you, right? Protect us from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Dominion to overcome Sin, by God's grace, and we already have that. We talk about let not sin have dominion or control over you. Romans 6, for example, Paul uses that similar language there. And the law of God helps you do that. It helps you fight back against sin so it doesn't rule your life, even as a Christian. Lot is a good example. He's saved, going to heaven, but he's saved by through fire, by the skin of his teeth, is what we say today. He didn't take God's law as seriously as he should have. And it could have saved them a lot of heartache. It's there to protect them from being dominated. Protecting us from being dominated by sin. Because it defines, it says, that's sin, avoid it. You don't have God's law, how are you going to know what sin is? Because it defines, it tells you, that's sin. That's the wrong way. And this is righteousness. This is the right way. This is the safe path. This is the good way to live. Warnings. To keep back your servant from presumptuous sins, from errors to cleanse us, to warn us, as we read in verse 11, involves to some extent fear, doesn't it? We should be afraid of sinning in the sense of displeasing God and not wanting the bad effects of sin. Sin is bad, it's dirty, we don't want to be near it. That's the kind of fear the Bible is talking about. Not irrational fear, not the freezing kind of fear, but the holy fear of God and of his law, not wanting to disappoint him nor suffer his discipline. We don't parse it that way. What we hear again is why we have to push back, right? My prayer, I said the church would have teachers that are faithful and true to push back against the lies of society. We have a lot of Midrash laws, called Midrash, which is an oral tradition of the Jews. We have a lot of that even in the churches. We don't say it. We don't have them written down. One of them is, no, perfect love casts out fear. So there should be no fear of God. Well, then what do you do with the passages in the New Testament? Say, fear God, fear the king. It's the same word, phobos. Well, we have to make proper distinctions. It's a type of fear. That's not these other kind of fears. It's the wrong kind of fears. But instead, our society speaks of what broad, broad generalities. It's all love. We don't want any fear. You Christians are all about fear and not about love. Don't let them browbeat you. That's just a lie. They believe in fear. They fear us and our quote-unquote theocracy, which we're not going to really have a theocracy. But we do want a Christian society. They fear that, of course, because we're going to put—we're going to be a damper on their wickedness, (laughs) and their love, as we know, is ultimately lust. So God's law—the warning—it keeps us back from presumptuous sins. That sin no longer have dominion over us. It's the tool of the Holy Spirit to fight back sin. It's not only faith; you must have faith. Yes, New Testament's clear. Paul's like, "Hey, you know, God's law." He quotes God's law. He applies God's law. It's faith, working in love, exercising obedience to God's law in which we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. The law is part of that armament by the Holy Spirit in our lives. Paul says in Romans 7 again, For I delight in the law of God. He says it that clearly. Nomos of Theos, God, according to the inward man. And he ends that section. That section you should all read again if you've forgotten it. Not to discourage you. I read it when I was down in the dumps and discouraged, struggling with my sins because I didn't understand that Christ died for me. What exactly did that mean? Because I don't feel like I'm obedient enough to get to heaven. I confused categories, didn't I? Read it. He concludes the section, I thank God, verse 25 of Romans 7. Not I thank God through Jesus Christ that I no longer sin. No, he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, here's my conclusion. With the mind, I myself serve what? Jesus, serve what? The gospel? Well, I would argue none of those are wrong, but he says specifically, I myself serve the law of God. You love me, keep my commandments. Psalm 19 has general revelation and special revelation. Revelation around us, and the revelation written down before us in the Bible. And we're reading this latter half, which is a glorious, great gift of God. His law. The heart of every believer is the last verse here. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. The cry of an adopted son who says, I want to do the right thing as your son and as your daughter. And you give me your holy royal law, as James calls it. Every believer longs to follow God's law so that his mouth and meditations would be acceptable to the covenant-keeping God. The Lord is our Father and accepts our weak faith and, weak, uh, and weaker efforts as acceptable sacrifices through the blood of Christ. Do not forget that. We seek our mouth and our meditations to be acceptable to the Father, because we are already acceptable to him by the blood of Christ and the covenant of grace. May the law be our meditation in the day of antinomianism and moral chaos. The law of the Lord is perfect, brothers and sisters, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, God above, for your law, for your word. We ask, God, that we would fight against the temptation to be embarrassed and fearful of your law, but rather, Lord, embrace us stand upon it by faith in Christ Jesus, Lord, not because it saves us, but because we are already saved and we desire to do the right thing, Lord, uh, to be examples to the world of what it means to be followers of Christ Jesus and to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen.